With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Kat Armas has a powerful question. What if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? That query is at the heart of her book, Abuelita Faith, what women on the margins teach us about wisdom. We're going to talk about that wisdom and those teachings, along with how Kat's personal journey through faith and academia has shaped her thinking on how the world would be different if those voices were front and center. Kat, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy we finally made this work. I want you to take me back to your earliest memory of questioning your own faith? I think that has been something that I've been doing my entire life. I mean, I'm sure many of us have, right? I'm Cuban and we were sort of just raised in this Catholic, this Roman Catholic faith. And it's something you sort of just did, right? Abuela, for me, my grandma was the beacon of spirituality in my life. And so I would go to church with her and I would watch her sing on the choir. And I went to my catechism classes and CCD and all of that. And And I remember, yeah, just really being moved and just into a lot of what we were talking about. And I just remember watching Telemundo with Abuela and seeing, you know, all the apparitions of Mary everywhere, like on the side of a house or like seeing Mary like on a piece of toast. And (laughs) I just remember (laughs) at first, like I was terrified of it. You know, I was terrified of these apparitions of Mary, but I was also like in awe of them and wondering like, and is Mary going to appear to me? Like, what if I see Mary? Like, what does that mean? And so these were moments that really shaped me, but it was just normal. It's part of my everyday life. It really wasn't until I became an adult. I began really wrestling with, well, what do I believe? And what do I, what does this mean for me? And it was leaving my little Cuban bubble of Miami, you know, 
and arriving to a, a place where I was the oddball out. I was one of the only Latinas in, in my in where I was at. And people just looked at me like a deer in headlights, like, who are you? That definitely wasn't the earliest memory of me questioning my faith, but that was when I began to really wrestle with my cultural identity and my faith. Once I left my bubble where I was part of the dominant culture and I was met with whiteness, I had to wrestle with, well, that faith that I had as a kid where Mary could appear to me anywhere and it was miraculous and it was ridiculous and it was weird, but it was beautiful. Those moments with Abuela or the women that raised me sitting in front of an altar praying the rosary and putting out little things of water for the saints and um, driving through past houses in Miami and seeing the San Lazaros with the dog licking their sores and being freaked out about it, but kind of understanding that that was sacred and holy. Yeah, I began to question that. As a Cuban Catholic, that of course is all very resonant with me. A little different in New Jersey, but still some of the, the, the main themes are there. It is interesting to me to hear you speak with such affection for Catholicism, given that you do become intellectually very critical, or you at least begin to interrogate it intellectually, and you yourself choose at some point to convert to Protestantism. What prompted that conversion? Yeah, so I I think during that time in my life, when I was just a young adult and just really wrestling with my life and my career and what I wanted to do and who I was, I was invited to to this Protestant event. And I was just really drawn by the community and the fun and the lights and the this and the that, you know, it just seemed so exciting to me. It has a very different vibe because I likewise, the same way, like my mother is a, a very much a questioning Catholic. She let me go to CCD because my grandmother would take us. And I think she thought it was like an hour and a half of free babysitting. And same <laughs> right. thing on Wednesday, the neighbors who were at an evangelical church, she let me go with them because again, it was like two hours of, of babysitting. But the vibe was so different. I remember being like, you guys got songs. People stand up and right. they clap. Like, this is a party. I was like, we're not having a party in Catholic Church. Exactly. And I think that that was what drew me. But again, there was so much cultural stuff that comes with that. And it wasn't until I left Miami and, you know, I left my Catholic bubble that I was like, oh, no, this is like very deeply culturally embedded. And I am an outsider, 100%. Can you give the listener a sense of where, where you were, where you felt that? It was in New Orleans, and I, I say New Orleans, but where I was, it was a very small subculture of white evangelicalism. And so I kind of arrived there, and, and it was a culture shock. I had this just completely different worldview, a very different idea of what God was. And, and it was complicated for me because I was raised by single women, a single mom and a single grandmother. And I you know, was raised to just be confident and loud and just say what you believe and whatever, because I had no choice. You know, we we're all just women. There was no men in our lives telling us not to do that. You know, I was loud and, and opinionated and all of these things. And so when I got there, it was, yeah, it was very hard to navigate. And I quickly was like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> I mean, so much so that you leave the first seminary. Right. Was yes. there an inciting incident or was it a series of smaller microaggressions? It was definitely a lot of microaggressions, but I can remember the one specific moment that I was like, I need to go. And I had been studying and I had been paying the same tuition as everyone else, right? Like you just, you're studying, you're doing the things. And I was very serious about my education. And um, I was in class one day and, and they were talking about how important it is to learn the specific ancient languages. And I was like, yes, because I was studying Greek and I was studying Hebrew and I was like all about it. And all of a sudden the professor looks at me and he's like, 
And ladies, your husbands will be very impressed if you can exegete scripture alongside them. And yeah, and I was right. And I was so appalled because I was like, what do you mean my husband's going to be so impressed? I'm not doing this for my husband. Like, why do you think I'm here? You know, like I'm paying this money and I'm putting in the work. And so that was the moment that I was like, no, I have to go. But there were a lot of little moments very similar to that. Yeah, and just being a a Cuban woman in that setting was just very bizarre for everyone, including myself. And does that change then when you go to the second seminary? Yes, a little bit. I would say, so the second seminary was in Los Angeles. And so we had a lot of Latinx people there. You know, we had a whole program for Latinos and, and theology. And so it was very different. But I would say in general, I mean, the institution, academia, whatever you want to call it, is predominantly white and it's predominantly male. And so at the end of the day, you're going to hit roadblocks culturally or ethnically. And then also if you're a woman. And so I think that while there were spaces where I was free to explore what I wanted to explore, pursue what I wanted to pursue, at the end of the day, theology, I mean, if you think back to the history of colonization, you think back to all of these things, I mean, theology is owned, essentially, by white men. So there's always going to be roadblocks there. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? (laughs) They do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. I do need to know, did Mama and Abuela think it was amazing that you were going to go study theology or were they like, just become a doctor and a lawyer like everybody else? 
Yeah, they weren't too impressed by me studying theology. <laughs> they were just like, oh, okay, that's cool, but why? What's the point of that? Abuela was very committed to her faith, of course, but yeah, for me to go and study it, she was just like, you just go to church. Like, why are you, you know? So no, they weren't very impressed by it. <laughs> you write, Scripture testifies the power and influence of grandmothers among the people of God for years. I overlooked this detail because I hadn't been trained to recognize the importance or value of women in the Bible. Tell me more. When I transitioned, I say transitioned to Protestantism, I fell in love with the Bible. And, and it was weird because I just found it so fascinating. I mean, you have all of these stories of women doing all sorts of questionable things in order to survive, right? And you have this story of Jesus appearing and saying, hey, all you rich people, like get rid of all your money and take care of the poor. And like all of these very subversive and scandalous things that I thought were incredible and I thought were beautiful. Now, granted, at that time of my life, I hadn't yet dealt with the way that the Bible had been used to suppress and oppress people. And, you know, of course I knew that was a reality, but I hadn't personally dealt with that. So I, it was easy for me to be fascinated with this book. And I know that's not everybody else's story. As I was wrestling years later with this Awalita faith, and as I'm working on this book, and I'm investigating all of these women in, in the Bible, and I'm arguing that they are Awalita theologians, and I'll explain what that is in a second, I couldn't believe how the thread that runs through their stories is this idea of survival, right? I mean, all of these women in the Bible are literally just trying to survive in a patriarchal culture, are trying to secure a husband so that they don't die. And I read that and I think that that is fascinating that these women are also in the genealogy of Jesus. They're elevated as women of great faith, righteous women. And many of them are literally pretending to be prostitutes in order to sleep with their father-in-law so that they can secure their future. And I realized in that that wait a minute, survival is sacred and survival is holy. Survival is this thing that I see the divine, I see God really supporting and encouraging. And we see so much of that in the Bible. And that is something that I also see in the stories of our abuelas. They're just surviving. And in that survival, I believe that their lives are holy and sacred and they have so much to teach us. I would layer onto that, uh, particularly for those of us who are Cuban, the element of exile. Exactly. So when you have this moment where you realize that you have not been trained to dive into all of this, what is your response? In that, in this investigating these women in, in the Bible and, and all of this, I, I realized, wait a minute, there are so many stories here that have, have been untold, have not been told. We skip over them because they may be scandalous or because they may be unimportant because they're women or because they're short, right? I mean, the Bible is a book written by men for men. And so a lot of the stories that I find so incredibly subversive and fascinating, there are a couple sentences, right? For example, the story of Rizba, a lot of people don't know who she is, but she was a woman who put her body on the line to protest the unjust murders of her sons. I mean, there's so much, there's so many moments where women are doing things in order to protest injustice or in order to do the right thing. They're lying to Pharaoh. They're standing up against empire. I mean, they're doing all of these things that nowadays we want to emulate, that we want to celebrate. If we really investigated this stuff, if we really read the Bible how we should, how I believe we should, then that would change a lot of how we practice. And that would change a lot of who we see on the pulpit. So that would change a lot of who we consider theologians. And that moment was big for me. I mean, that was actually one of the moments. It wasn't when I was writing the book, but it was when I started realizing the stories of women are 
they have obviously been silenced and suppressed and all of these things, but this is not the way that I want to practice my faith, or this is not how I believe that God would want it to be. And so that was the moment actually that I left that first seminary. It was through my just investigating women in the Bible. And then in writing Awalita Faith, I just began to explore more of that. And it really changed, sort of did a shift in my mind of like, who's a theologian and what is spirituality? And it's sub- spirituality now I'm seeing is subversive and spirituality now I'm seeing is daring, right? And it's scandalous and it's seeking out to undo injustice. You describe in Abuelita Faith something that that I've never heard before, which is this concept of research grief and experiencing research grief. What did that look like for you? So I talk about how in that moment I was sitting in bed with all the tabs, all my Google tabs open, researching stuff. And I had my ojeras were, were dark purple and I was just feeling, you know, all sorts of things. And as I mentioned earlier, we know the history of colonization. We know that it has affected our communities. But in that moment of really researching, it became very personal for me. It became very, very personal for me. You know, I was in a class. We were learning about women in the church and uh, the history of women in Christianity. And of course, all of the, they were all European women. But yeah, and then studying that, I'm like, well, what about Cuban women? Like, why don't we, why is this just a, a side thing in our studies? That's a very common thing in theological studies. You have Black history or Latin American history, or all of these sort of histories as a side, you know, a little 10 minute lecture in a class. But I was like, no, I I really want to study and understand the history of Christianity in Cuba. And again, I knew about, you know, the colonization. I knew about the history of Roman Catholicism. But man, when I really began to think about it and think about how these are the women that I, I stand on their shoulders. And that's when it hit me. There's so much grief here. There's so much generational trauma here. And I experienced that research grief and I looked it up and it's apparently it's a thing when you really get into the thick of these topics and you start to realize like this isn't just an intellectual thing, but it lives in our bodies and it lives in our souls. Which is particularly relevant for you as an academic, because as academics, you are told not to bring your personal experience to the work, to draw a bright line. And as I understand it from you, you reject that premise. Yeah, I think it's impossible. And that's the thing with academia. And that's the thing also with theology is that we want to, theology is the study of God and we want to just do it in our minds. But that's, and that's really what I'm trying to get at with Awalita faith or Awalita theology is that the study of God, right? The relating, the experiencing God, the connecting with God happens everywhere but in your mind, you know, especially with our abuelas and the history of so many, you know, in our community, Connecting with God happens in your body and it happens around the table. And it happens when you're, like I say in Abuelita Faith, discussing la lucha, the struggle of everyday life. That is theology. When you're sitting around and, you know, the cafecitos brewing and the floor is being mopped, you know, how I mentioned in the book. And that is the study of God, you know, when you're sitting around and you're just, you're talking about exile or you're reflecting on survival or you're coming together with your community and and kind of shutting the door to the outside world and uh, reflecting on 
where you've come and how far you've come and and how God, you know, because for many of our abuelas, there is a, a spiritual religious element to their lives. And so you're kind of reflecting on how God has been present in those moments. And so that to me is the study of God. That is theology. And so it's funny because I have several theology degrees, but I, I say, no, actually, that's not important. At the end of the day, I talk about abuela and how she sewed and, and that was spiritual. That was a spiritual thing for her. That I argue it's all a, an act of spirituality and theology. It's funny because reading Abuelita Faith, I couldn't decide if my grandmother would be like, yes, that is right. I am divine. Or if she would have been like, que americanada, that she thinks, (laughs) I'm a theologian. (laughs) Right. Right. And I would say even that my grandmother, she wasn't educated. She wasn't, she didn't lead a Bible study or any of those things. And again, she was just simply trying to survive and she would go to church and sing on the choir and do all of these normal quote unquote, normal things. But yeah, I don't think that that she would ever consider herself a theologian. Again, I just think that she was just living her life. But for those of us with varying levels of privilege, and those of us who are who are looking to the elite white male to teach us about God, that's who I want to say, no, 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 wait a minute. It's not, that's not where you'll find it. I mean, you may find information about God, but to really experience God, that's not where you should be looking primarily. It's funny because, yeah, I don't think Abuela is is too, just like she was not too interested in my theology degree, she's not looking to herself as this beacon of, you know, spirituality. But I think that that's part of it, right? You know, like you have like like the white men in the pulpit saying, look to me. And then you have our Abuelita saying, no, 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 don't look at me. Don't look to me. And I think that's part of that sort of shift in your mind. How would our world and our faith shift if we moved our looking for the answers from the men in the institutions that you outline and looked to someone like our own grandmothers instead? Oh my gosh. Oh, I think our world, our churches, everything would shift monumentally. You know, I, I always say that one of the things that I talk about in Abuelita Faith and I like to say all the time is, Imagine if the colonizers or the, those with the highest levels of privilege, imagine if they knew how to be good guests. Imagine when the colonizers arrived to the Americas and were like, hey, like, I, I'm just here to be a guest. I mean, granted, they should have never you know, bothered folks in the first place, but what a difference that would be if we could um, learn from those on the ground. And, and again, not have it be an intellectual endeavor, but seek to be good guests. And I think about that in every aspect of life. I think about what it would be if those with privilege would just be a guest at, at an unfamiliar table. And I think about Abuela's table and I think about how we were all guests. It was her table. She decided what she ate. You know, she cooked the meal. She set the t- you know, she did all the things and we just sat there and we enjoyed her and we enjoyed yeah, just the life that she was offering for us. And so I think, imagine if our abuelas and marginalized people in our communities were hosts and it wasn't those with privilege that were hosting the tables. We don't have to invite folks to the table. They have their own tables. Like I always say that, like, abuela had her own table. You don't need to invite her to yours. Like, she's good. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like she's happy at her own table. Why don't you go sit at hers and learn from her, you know? As someone who is in the theological world or considers myself a Christian, we constantly feel like we need to be the hosts. We need to always be the ones serving, right? Serving the poor or whatever it is. 
what if we let the poor serve us? I think that would shift our world, our churches, the way that we think about everything. (laughs) As you can tell from my silent tears, I am incredibly moved by that idea of being a good visitor. So thank you. I will take that with me always. Kat, thank you so much for your ideas and for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, as always, for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Polina Velasco is our producer. Manuela Bedoya is our marketing lead. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer and mix this episode. We love hearing from you. It makes our day. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram. Tweet us at latinatolatina. Check out our merchandise that is on our website, latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember, please subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you are listening right now. Every time you share this podcast, every time you share an episode, every time you leave a review, it helps us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.